0: We're just trying to get to the truth.
1: I get it. But what you need
2: to remember is that there's what people want to hear, there's what people want to believe, there's everything else. Then there's the truth. And since when is that okay? I can't even believe you're saying this to me. The truth
3: means responsibility, Arnie.
1: Exactly, which is why everyone dreads it. This is an alternative
2: universe. See,
3: there aren't any textbooks that teach about
0: these principles. It's dangerous if the government gets in the business of propaganda. We need journalistic integrity now more than ever.
3: Warning, you're listening to the Agenda 31 podcast with Corey Ive and Todd McGreevy.
0: The thing, remember, names are for things. That is why the United States respects the sovereignty of the British people and their right of self-determination. For good reasons, we don't want the government to be
3: the lead on that. Due to the unique division of political authority in the United States, U.S. citizens are residents in every state and should not attempt to copy the strategies employed by the hosts of the Agenda 31 broadcast without first consulting legal counsel.
1: Do you have a license for this? Uh, motivation. What's, what, what is
0: my motivation? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with slavery, just so we're clear.
2: As a U.S. citizen, you, you just don't own anything. You're just a, a user, and the government owns everything. And the assumption is everybody's a U.S. citizen.
0: You know, you're going to have to shut up, or I'm going to have you
1: arrested. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back, I should say, to the lowest risk, highest reward podcast in the universe... Agenda 31. This is your co-host, Todd McGreevy, and I'm being joined by...
2: Corey Ibe. Good to be on here with you, Todd.
1: Likewise, likewise. And uh, this is episode 134 of Agenda 31, and it is 11-11, 2017, November 11, 2017. And we are uh, recording live to tape here, and we've taken a hiatus back in mid to late May with episode 133 titled Slaving and Terrorizing. That was our (laughs) outro title Uh, when we took our hiatus for the summer. It's uh, turned into a little bit of the fall as well. And we're here to update uh, our listeners on what we've been up to since we decided to take a hiatus. We uh, avowedly said it was time to act instead of talk when we last left you with our last podcast back in May. And uh, I dare say that uh, Corey especially has certainly uh, acted on what he said he was going to do. And I've gotten about, oh, 50% of done what I was going to do. So I, I consider that a, a bonus um, and a positive thing. So let's uh, let's, let's jump into uh, where we've been since May. Corey, uh, you filed a writ of mandamus into the, at the Supreme Court.
2: I did, yeah. I filed a petition for writ of mandamus in the Supreme Court. Quickly to cut to the chase, it was uh docketed which is in my opinion a significant step forward so now we can say we absolutely have the ability to get a case docketed in the supreme court uh, but it was denied without comment and upon review which uh, i know the there was a select group not all the listeners i think but a select group of people got the push to the video that i posted a couple of days
1: those who've contributed to to the
2: cause all right, so we had financial supporters get the the first look on that video that was the i entitled i guess i 'll call it the getting kicked in the gut video because you know when you take a loss like that it, it hurts for sure, um, but it doesn 't matter it it the only thing that matters when you get knocked down is how quick you get back up and I took a couple of days to lick my wounds reread my uh, my petition from a perspective of having been denied, and I found a, a glaring error in it, which I think I can attribute to something that all of us, every once in a while, can be susceptible to, and that is confirmation bias. So, ultimately, what I petitioned for, the way my petition got into the Supreme Court, was through mandamus. That, this mandamus is, uh, it, it means, we command, And the only time that's ever used, and it's very, very rarely used and rarely exercised by the court, is when the appellate jurisdiction of the court is being infringed upon. And the theory that I had to get into court was that the United States Marshals were infringing on the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court because they arbitrarily are blocking me from getting into federal court where I can file a petition. That was uh, a sufficient enough argument that, based on that, we're able to get it docketed. Then once it's docketed, it goes to conference, and that's where uh, the judges, you know, in theory, they talk about the cases. Most likely what happens is, each of the judges has their group of clerks that read through the cases and then give the judge a recommendation, yay or nay, on to whether or not it should, uh, it should be you know, given a hearing. So to be as rough—go ahead. There
1: was, there was a step in between that, though, that, that was fairly uh, fascinating in my view, and that was that the, uh, the, the parties named in your uh, filing included— the head of the social security administration and the head of the california dmv and those respective parties i think were notified by the supreme court per and 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 you you served them with the same filing you gave to the court i believe is that
2: correct yeah the the supreme court once it gets docketed they send a letter out it's it's fascinating how it works because the rules are very different at the supreme court so they send out a letter that you then must send out to the uh, respondents saying that, hey, this case has been docketed. And the respondents were uh, the uh, the Commissioner of Social Security and then the Director of the DMV. It might, I might have the titles backwards there. But there was also a third one, uh, the third respondent, which is the federal government itself, and that is the Solicitor General. So you'd, I sent that out to the Solicitor General, the Social Security Administration, as well as the DMV. So they all got notified that the case was docketed, and now they need to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to respond. Uh, they decided not to respond, and I think I know why now.
1: And did there, did, was there lack of response just simply by doing nothing, or did they actually file a waiver of response?
2: Yeah, they have to file a formal waiver of response, and the court has the opportunity to override that waiver and require a response, but in this case, they didn't do that um and you know it it's uh to get into the the flaw of where the argument was i learned i think this might be even in jurisdictionary in fact, we should put a link in that for people if they want jurisdictionary it's a It's a great way to bone up on. Kind of the basics of legal procedure, so um, anyway there there's this idea that you try and boil things down to the absolute simplest, like if you've got a fraction that is uh, sixteen thirty seconds, you would reduce that down to one half right? So you want to do the same thing with your argument, get it as simple as possible, take everything out so you can get down to the essence of the argument. What I asked for in relief is what I wanted. It wasn't what was going to solve the problem that created the situation that my case was able to get docketed for mandamus to begin with. does that make sense?
1: Yeah, you conflated the two into right
2: the, into the- and so what uh, which by the way i'm not i'm not barred from uh, filing anything at the Supreme Court i I certainly all they did was just reject it without comment, but there's there's nothing stopping me from resubmitting. Obviously, if I were to resubmit the exact same thing again with a with an argument that I know has a fault in it um, you can be you can have sanctions for that, so I'll be very careful about submitting again but uh the I, I tell you the amount of confidence that I have now because I know that I can read the rules and understand what needs to be done so you can get the case docketed that's a a big step that doesn't mean that you have a winning argument, right? So I I need to work on that winning argument and I have to pare down what I was trying to achieve. I was trying to achieve just way too much with this filing with the Supreme Court and I need to narrow it way back down. So I'll do that. Incremental steps. Correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, and the, the big picture is, as I shared with friends around me that inquired about you here where I live, Corey, and what's been going on with your situation is that you were successful in getting your uh, filing docketed, and you know, to me that was a, a big step. And, but more importantly, it, it's, it, it asked the question, do we own our consent or not? That's the summary of how I view what you did. Absolutely. You know, I, You get through all the machinations of can you get into the system, you know, can you get it docketed because you're being denied to be, you know, access to the federal court, literally denied physical entrance to the courthouse to make a filing. We've covered that on previous shows, and that was because you didn't have a government-issued I.D., and of course, you know most people. It's almost like you know, well, if you have nothing to hide, why do you care? You know, if you if you want to have access to the court, why didn't you get an ID, Corey?
2: Well, let's. Uh, just, do you want to address that real quick? Because it's a sure. huge argument. Yeah. Right. And and I actually do have. I mean, we know now I have a driver's license, so I could show them a driver's license, or I could show them a passport. I do have both of those. But the the problem comes when the marshals get to arbitrarily decide that you have to show a government-issued ID. When you get a driver's license, you waive rights. We can take Justice Kennedy's audio. I should have had that ready, but uh, Justice Kennedy's audio about when you get a driver's license, you waive waive rights. And in return, you get a license. That's what he said. He didn't say you get to drive, uh, anything else. You just get a license. So when you waive rights, Then, and the marshal service is able to say, you can't come in here unless you show us a driver's license. That's not what they're saying. They're saying an approved government identification. But for now, they did ask me for a driver's license. That was the first thing they asked for. Mm -hmm. But if you show them a driver's license, then you are entering into court under a condition where you have already waived rights. And those rights can be significant. One of those rights is that the dmv be subject to the law of the land which is the rules of the supreme court and i won't go into it this minute but i'll take you down a path to show how the dmv has hijacked the system with your they they need you as a patsy that that's what they need you're the patsy in this whole con game but the end result is the dmv has absolutely no reason to follow the supreme court and the supreme court is trapped to where they have to recognize that. The DMV can literally do almost anything it wants. And anytime there's a decision that they don't like, they're able to, you know, able to activate this loophole in the Constitution and then readjust and completely nullify whatever decision from the Supreme Court that impacts the DMV in any way.
1: Is it a loophole in the Constitution or is it that people are just dumb enough to
2: consent? I use the term I use the term loophole, um, because it it does allow the the government a loophole, right? It, it's a loophole out of the Constitution. It being, it being what is a loophole? The waivers. So that once you yes. have a driver's license, those waivers that you that you uh, agreed to with the driver's license ultimately gives the DMV the ability to operate to where it does not have to follow the constitution. The only thing the DMV has to follow is its own policy. And with that, you have very limited standing to sue them based on policy. Um, But that's how most successful lawsuits against the DMV are is based on policy. But
1: back to, back to denying you entrance to the, to the courthouse to make a filing to, to prove and bring to bear whether or not we own our own consent or not. Uh, the, the thread that I keep pointing out to people is because, you know again, like if you've got nothing to hide, why do you care if they're surveilling you? you know Why don't you just show them your ID, guy, and get in the courthouse? Because it's on the, on the principle of as, as soon as you show that ID that you're, you're saying that you're part of that system. You consented to waiving the rights, and so your argument that you want to file will have no bearing. It's not, not, not a varying Article Four state citizenship. You're just going, I'm a U.S. citizen slave, and I'm going to come on here and push this rock up the hill, and it's just going to be a
2: waste of your time. Absolutely, and it also is important for the people to hold their government agencies accountable um, i 've uh, Joshua in Las Vegas he right now is just the other day he got a ticket. The marshal service gave him told him he can 't come to the court anymore now now let let 's just give the marshals everything that they said right that they accused him of doing, which is basically being a pain in the ass at the court right. So whether or not you agree with how he was conducting himself during a protest the marshals should never have the ability to bar somebody from ever coming to a federal court again it's either if you did something criminal for instance if Joshua did something criminal then they can charge him with a crime he would receive that punishment but barring him from going to court what do you expect what do you expect people to do if they can't go to court and certainly, the federal court has jurisdiction over many aspects of American life. If there is absolutely no remedy because you can't go to court, then what? What do you do? The only option is you become violent to get your ways. That, as a society, not not Joshua, but as a society, the society. If there's no way to settle disputes, then that that can destroy the um, any type of society. Certainly you know, knock down uh, any type, whatever faith or, or confidence people have in left. Well, Joshua, uh, I think it was almost a year ago or maybe a little over a year ago, he got this restraining order. Um, it's called a no trespass order. And the marshals come out and they read him, read him a statement in front of Las Vegas PD. And that statement is read from what's called the owner of the property. So the marshals were acting like the owner of the property. And they then tell Joshua in front of Las Vegas PD that he can never come to federal court again. He went to federal court just a couple of days ago. I think it was Thursday of last week. Uh, I could be wrong. And he wanted to go talk to the clerk. I think what he was looking at was finding out if they had a pro se clinic. I could be wrong on that. But he basically wanted to go in and talk to the clerk. So he's very respectful, very nice, went up and talked to the marshals and told them, I would like to come into the court. I would like to talk to the clerk, and um, no protests, no nothing out of the ordinary. They call Las Vegas PD and demand that he be arrested. Wow! So Las Vegas PD basically tells the marshals that hey, we've got real crimes to go after. You know what? He's not being disrespectful. He's not, you know, causing any trouble. Wow. And, and the marshals just pushed it. So Las Vegas PD issued an, a citation. So he is now in a situation where he has to go to state court for a trespass order because he tried to enter into federal court. And literally, there's jail time involved in this. They, they could put him in jail for attempting to go talk to the clerk without a breach of peace. I don't care what, what anybody says he did prior to this. If he did something criminal... And then bring it
1: to bear. It it to bear
2: right, oh, and then and he'll pay the price, and and that's it. But to say you can never go to court again, that means the marshals are out of control, and they need to be brought to heel. They need to know that their job is to protect the courts and guarantee that there is always a nonviolent way to handle a dispute, whether it's with your neighbor, somebody in another state, or the federal government. And the marshal service right now is actively, all over the place, blocking people from getting into court. And so that alone is why, that's just another example of why it's so important. The Marshal Service should never have the ability to decide, arbitrarily decide, what kind of identification you get. Because right now, think about this, right now the, the Homeland Security has the ability to suspend your passport. So let's say that you're of a political persuasion that the government doesn't like. You know, I mean, we know the IRS has done this. I'm sure Homeland Security has people in there that would have no problem targeting somebody based on their ideological beliefs. Mm -hmm. And they figure out a way to say, you know what, we're going to suspend your passport. And they're working on being able to suspend your driver's license. But let's say they decide they're going to suspend your passport and you don't have a driver's license. Now, how do you get into federal court? Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important that you should never have to have any type of identification to get into federal court. I don't. I personally actually don't have a problem with the um, marshal service requiring that you identify yourself. That to me is not a problem. Whether that is you say who you are. That way, if you're there to commit any type of fraud in the courts, that's a check that they can come back and say, oh, well, he said he was Corey I, but then when he got into the courtroom, he used the name, you know, David Copperfield. And uh, and now that would be a fraudulent case. I don't have a problem with that. But for the marshal service to be able to say, we get to decide not only that you have to show an identification, but we get to decide who issues the identification that we'll accept, incredibly dangerous. It gives them an incredible amount of power. And all you need is a, you know, just a little tiny push from where they're at right now. And now half the population would not be able to get into court to handle a dispute. And that's something that has to be addressed.
1: I'd put a, I agree with you. And I I put a little slight nuance on the, the dynamic there. I, you, sh- you could say you 're David Copperfield at the door it doesn't matter. What matters is if you you get in there and you make a filing and you you know submit your um, matter via the system and it, and it gets reviewed and then it comes time to actually have a hearing you know bringing a a controversy to bear and in, and during that contra- when that contra- controversy is brought to bear and the parties have to identify themselves that 's when the, the whether or not you're fraudulently representing yourself or not comes to bear it shouldn't matter at the at the gate i i totally matter. agree with you it should matter when when it comes time for the adversaries to have the matter heard right and then that, that's where, you know, first step is identifying the parties in the room. And, and then, you know, that, then it's this, the system and the judge can determine, you know, whether or not you're fraudulently representing yourself or not.
2: You're right. The, the argument properly executed, I guess I'm trying to take as little ground as I can at the moment, but you're absolutely right, Todd. The, the argument should be that the marshal service should have no authority to even ask who you are, but they have plenary authority to make sure you behave.
1: Sure, he can't come in there and start, you know, causing, you know, havoc. And Absolutely, being just, like, yeah. While doing something like that, I, we're, we're in agreement on that. Completely. But, but I'll tell you, I think that the, uh, the, the no trespass order for Joshua, I, I'm guessing at some point during his, you know, um, exchange with these individuals, uh, he perhaps proffered a government-issued ID, I'm guessing. He I doesn't, don't
2: know. He doesn't have one. Okay,
1: all right. He's got so, a common
2: uh, law ID. Uh,
1: or... How'd they issue a citation.
2: Well, they keep, just like what they did with me, just because I closed my driver's license account and got rid of my driver's license, and then the DMV destroyed it, all it was was now I'm in, in violation of possessing a driver's license. They didn't actually close the account. And that's the rub. That's, that is the, the gigantic goal, is to get these agencies to actually close the account to where you have no relationship with them. What they do is they just change the status of the account, and now you're a slave who's not walking around with the slave card, and that's what Joshua is facing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, circling back to that—that uh, uh, that pre- you being precluded from entering the, the courthouse physically is what is the lever that got the the, the writ of mandamus docketed. Correct. All right. And then in addition to that uh, writ of mandamus to uh, to get docketed, you sought, you know, the the relief from the SSA and the DMV. And that's the conflation that we're talking about. Exactly. That was the overreach. overreach. So one thing at a time is what you're saying.
2: What what I what I did to just boil it down to the ridiculous is I said, hello, Supreme Court. The Marshal Service is infringing on your appellate jurisdiction by not letting me into federal court. So please cancel my driver's license and social security number. Mm -hmm. When you when you word it like that, you realize, wow, I sure messed up on that filing. But jump shark there. Yeah, I just uh, you know, I mean, I'm I've been focused for eight years on closing this damn driver's license account and uh and you know the reading through all the rules and and reading everything with that focus of, hey, how do I get this driver's license account? I guess I kind of used well, the Marshall Service isn't letting me in. maybe that's my way to get into Supreme Court to close my driver's license account, and what I should have done was you know, and this is how I will adjust my petition on this particular petition um is I should have said, hey, the Marshal Service is not letting me into federal court. Please issue a mandamus order ordering the Marshal Service to let me into federal court. That's how I should have presented it. So um, I'll submit it one more time in that fashion, and uh, um, you know, and we'll, we'll see what happens. I think that would be a huge win.
1: The, the shit's chess, it ain't checkers.
2: Exactly.
1: So your confirmation bias is was your hubris, Corey?
2: Well, yeah, I think so. I think that's what it is. It
1: uh, our confirmation bias. I mean, I you know went over the document many, many times with you and right, yeah, people, you know, trusted friends looked at it together, gave some input, and uh, you know, none of us caught what you know the, the conflation. We didn't, we didn't catch that. So, right. but it's pretty, lo-
2: it's pretty obvious once you know on the, on once you get the. Uh, uh, the dismissal notice, and you read through it again, looking for that error it uh it was glaring to me. It's amazing that you know how powerful confirmation bias is
1: well, you know low risk high reward that was one of the lower risk potentially highest reward activities you could take, certainly, and uh you're not uh finished yet you you you're uh, as you said you know it's how how quickly do you get back up is the is the measure based on what you've shared with me, It looks like you're getting right back up and and going at it again. So
2: Absolutely. Uh, I mean uh the the idea that, hey man, I I got I got a case docketed in the Supreme Court, that means I've got a piece of experience that you know vast, the vast majority of attorneys in this country don't have. That's kind of cool. And uh you know, it it's just all about getting better and better. At some point the skills are gonna be good enough that they have to take notice.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, speaking of attorneys, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune recently that a a, a friend sent me a f- attorney friend of mine and it was about judge posner p o s n e r and he uh, on Labor Day weekend unceremoniously and surprising many people at age seventy eight resigned from the from the uh, court that he had served so long, and he is uh, amongst those that are legal. Beagles and scholars and attorneys know his reputation well as a voluminous jurist. Have you heard of him before?
2: I I, I have heard of him, uh, mm-hmm. but I can't say anything more than I've heard the name Judge Richard uh, Posner. Posner. I, yeah. I I think is it Posner or Posner?
1: I, I've heard it pronounced Posner.
2: Posner. Okay. Um. I mean that's that's the way it looks to me. The. As I recall, and, of course, reading this, it's obvious, but he is um, uh, very—well, no, go ahead. That's not right. I'm thinking of a different judge.
1: The Tribune says, lawyers, who needs them? And the headline reads, former U.S. appeals court judge Richard Posner, get rid of lawyers, is, is the title of the headline. And uh, not big companies defending themselves against small-time plaintiffs who can't afford a lawyer of their own, reads the article. At least that's the opinion of recently retired U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Richard Posner, who seems to be taking as much delight in tweaking the egos of attorneys and his former colleagues from off the bench as he did when he was on it. Instead of having lawyers face off in an adversary battle, Posner, 78 years old, says he'd like to see a judge order both sides in a case to go to trial without their lawyers, just like on Judge Judy. Quote, there's no constitutional right to an attorney in civil cases, end quote. Posner pointed out to Chicago Inc., adding that plaintiffs, quote, don't necessarily need lawyers, end quote. I'm looking for a judge who's willing to say I'm not going to let either side have any lawyers. I don't want to to have the case clogged up with lawyers, he said with a chuckle. A judge could do it, and people are so reluctant to upset judges that they'd probably go along with it. (laughs) Wow. The article goes on to talk about uh, long feared by attorneys for his withering intellect, Posner, a prolific and acclaimed author, as well as the most widely cited American legal scholar, has never been shy about criticizing his former colleagues. He has described the quality of Supreme Court justices as awful and offer rails against the standard of legal writing. After quoting the Seventh Circuit this summer in part over his belief that pro se plaintiffs and defendants, people who represent themselves in court rather than hire a lawyer, typically because they can't afford one, are poorly treated by the courts, he is forming a law firm to help pro se litigants. Now, this article and others i found point out parenthetically that, ironically, Posner had a jury verdict in a criminal trial he presided over, overturned by his colleagues recently, you know, right before he uh resigned after they found that he had prejudiced the jury against a pro se defendant. It's an interesting little rabbit hole that needs to be explored on what that's all about. I'd like to hear somebody bring that up to him directly to 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 see what his thoughts are.
2: Well I read in because I I got that link from you just a little bit and I did a quick read about him. Um he he admitted in one i don't remember which i think you sent me a couple of links or i just googled him real quick but he admitted that he was deep within the culture of the court to be dismissive to a pro se litigant and didn't realize it oh and, wow and that once he's left court and sees what it is he's really almost he didn't say this but the the way i got out of that paragraph is he's kind of atoning for that um mm-hmm. that mentality that is just Absolutely, completely overtaken the courts to where he would dismiss a pro se litigant because that's just how it is.
1: That's uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. in fact, Crane's Chicago Business uh, has an article about him as well, and they did an interview and they asked him, "You have said you accelerated your retirement because you were upset about how the circuit treats pro, pro se litigants. When did this start bothering you?" And his his response, according to Crane's, is, "It was about six months ago. It's a case called Miller." V. Marbury. And it's a very unpleasant case. The plaintiff was a prisoner, and when he checked into the prison for his sentence, the first thing he was told to do was to go to the medical clinic. He had a brain tumor, and the medical people said, your brain tumor is interfering with your balance, and therefore you have to have a low bunk in your cell. So he goes off to a cell block, and he tells the guard, but the guard says to him, where's your document? The guard says, well, no document, no lower bunk for you. He's in the upper bunk, and sometime later, sure enough, he falls, and he's seriously injured. He's taken off to the hospital, treated. And returns. He's sent back to his upper bunk, and then he has another fall. In any event, the warden of the prison likes to walk around the cell blocks. Her walk always carried her right in front of his cell. He would always approach her and say, Warden, I'm supposed to be in the lower bunk. She just looks at him, and she doesn't say anything, and then she continues on her rounds. He files a suit for damages for deliberate indifference to a serious medical need, and while the suit is progressing slowly, he dies, but his parents continue with the suit. The district judge, however, throws it out. This is pro se, you know, litigants. The parents appeal And I was on the panel with two other judges for the appeal. They agreed with the district judge and voted to affirm the dismissal. And I dissented, Posner says. This is ridiculous. The guard and the warden were aware of a serious danger of their own medical staff that told them this. I thought this was a shocking result. So he says... uh, I began looking more closely at the pro se cases. I just noticed that they tended to get very casual treatment by the staff attorneys who prepare a memo recommending a disposition of the appeal by the judges. The more I got into it, the more bothered I was by it. The recommendation goes to a panel of judges and they usually rubber stamp the staff attorney's memo, which is usually to dismiss the appeal. This has been a problem for a really long time. Uh, I guess I'm curious how it never came to your attention before, says Cranes. And he says, I think I was just going along with the culture of the court None of the judges paid any attention to the pro se's, and I just never woke up until I saw this case. So that might be what you're referring to as yeah, well.
2: Yeah, I think that's the, the quick paragraph I saw. That's exactly it. Uh, so yeah. that, I mean, he is kind of explaining there a culture of what you're up against. You can have the right argument. You can have, you know, truth on your side and be right. But, if there's such a prejudice against you from the actual judges, then it doesn't matter
1: we're going to dig into Posner a little more and and, and look into his firm that he's formed up i mean apparently uh he's he has an over two hundred thousand dollar a year pension coming his way <laughs> yeah, and apparently he's going to dedicate some of this to uh you know funding this this uh, uh, organization. And he, he says he's gotten about 60 different, you know, solicitations of, of people that are doing pro se work and, you know, wanting to, you know, be part of his team and so forth. So anyway, I think it's pretty interesting. We, you know, he, if there's any, you know, we, I think we should think about getting your case in front of him and his team, maybe that might be of, uh, of interest. Hey, absolutely. So yeah. I can tell you, every attorney that I've ever talked to around here and brought up article four state citizenship with, they just glaze,
2: they want nothing to do with it. Oh, of course zero, zero. but now i've got uh, there's kind of a new question uh for that so yeah. and that that goes into what we'll talk about when, later but um uh the the hijacking of the system if you expose the hijacking of the system and ask them if that's what they're for it forces them to engage right now they just dismiss everything so i've got a great way that that uh at least it's had some visible effect on people when i've posed the question a certain way excellent
1: well uh you know people may wonder that are new to this to this topic you know why are you guys so worried about averring article 4 state citizenship and why are you you know why don't you just get a piece of plastic and have a driver's license and go i mean what's your problem why are you you know what you don't want to pay taxes is that what your problem is you know what you know we all pay our taxes why don't you you know Aren't you on? You know, aren't you an American? What's your problem? And we've covered it ad nauseum on this show. And yeah, taxes are part of it. And why don't you want to pay them? Because they're used for ill means. They're used to cause mayhem, havoc, damage, destruction, evil across the planet. Um, And 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 that we could go. You know, there's all kinds of other podcasts dedicated to that. You know, what's going on with uh, with regards to uh, how our how the U.S. government conducts themselves, including. Uh, If you listen to uh, John uh, uh, Whitehead for the Rutherford Rutherford Institute, if you check him out, if you check out uh, Scott Horton and the Scott Horton Show, he has superb interviews and he details and and, there's, you know, there's an epidemic of cholera going on in Yemen that we helped cause by our support of the, uh, the Saudis uh, war in in Yemen that people don't even know about. They're not even talking, 700,000 people have cholera cholera, and children are dying over there. Um, That's why... (laughs) This this government is has run amok, uh, and, and many of us would propose to you that uh, it has a lot to do with um, what we've talked about on the show, that the uh, California state government codified uh, warning people about a communist uh, takeover of America. Absolutely. And I, and I say, I tread these waters lightly because of all of the hype around the so-called communist collusion with Pick your pick your you know bird wing of the bird of prey the Republican Trump or or the you know the the Democrat Hillary, all right you know the, suppose they've both colluded with the Russians and there's this battle about this and you know it, the the topic is never it, it's the 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 be very afraid of Russians is so ingrained in our culture that there's no there's it's there's there's no there's no need other than shorthand of just bringing the word Russian up and you should be afraid right meanwhile. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, the uh, just a quick, just historical thing. George Washington, when parties started to form, the political parties were starting to form. He recommended to the people that they not join a political party. So I do everything. I, I personally, my personal belief and value system, I would say, definitely aligns more conservative than, um, than not. Correct. So right. So from that perspective. I pull back and I don't want to be associated with either political party. And what that does is it allows you to see a larger playing field. And when you take into consideration what the Russians, uh, that Russian KGB agent that we had talked about a while ago, what he said that they were going to do, they're accomplishing perfectly. And that is just to create division and confusion. That's all they're trying to do. They're, it, the collusion is just like, So the the Democrats can say, look what the Republicans were doing. The Republicans are saying, look what the Democrats were doing. Instead, it should be, as Americans, was anybody doing anything? Or how are they affecting us? To me, I just see such an advantage of being able to pull back from the typical left-right mental paradigm and look at a bigger picture from the point of being an American and take that advice directly from somebody who knew what they were talking about, you know, George Washington.
1: And, and caveat there for the term American, if you listen to Kurt Kallenbach, which I consider, you know, a, a good source on, yeah. on etymology at, at a bare minimum, uh, you know, he'll, he'll tear apart the term American and say that we shouldn't even be calling ourselves American. Uh, you know, that there's South America, North America, you know, they're all Americans. And so it's, it's kind of a useless term. I don't have a, a, a replacement this minute for you for that, but I think that's an interesting little dynamic of how we just you know, throw that term about.
2: Absolutely. In fact, um, to kind of further on that, uh, Rich in Texas has pointed out that I'll often use the term uh, federal when referring to citizenship, that 14th mm-hmm. Amendment citizenship is is federal. And it is but federal isn't really the right term for that, and he brought up the Federalist Number 39 and uh, explained that in that, it explains the difference between a federal and a national government. And the federal government operates in a certain manner. The national government operates in a different manner. So I, um, uh, I recommend it, everybody read Federalist Number 39. It's about halfway through. It'd take you 10 minutes to read it. Uh, I'll get it. I'll post. The, I've got the file, so I'll give it to you, and you can download it. And uh, I'm really thankful. I'm glad to learn that. So if I'm wrong about using the term American, I want to be right because I hate being wrong more than I, I want to be right. I guess. Um, but if there's some evidence to show that, I just use the term American in kind of the vernacular, but not in in a, like a just a, a sloppy way of using it. But that yeah. that is such a good. Uh, a a good thing to keep front of mind is how accurate is the language you're using because language is your weapon when you get into court. And if you've got something that doesn't shoot straight, you're probably not going to hit what you're going after. Absolutely. And uh, so you recorded the the passage. I'm just going to play this real quick. The difference between a federal and national government as it relates to the operation of the government, is supposed to consist in this, that in the former, the powers operate on the political bodies composing the Confederacy in their political capacities. In the latter, on the individual citizens composing the nation in their individual capacities. On trying the Constitution by this criterion, it falls under the national, not the federal character, though perhaps not so completely as has been understood. In several cases, and particularly in the trial of controversies to which states may be parties, they must be viewed and proceeded against in their collective and political capacities only. So far, the national countenance on the government on this side seems to be disfigured by a few federal features. But this blemish is perhaps unavoidable in any plan, and the operation of the government on the people in their individual capacities in its ordinary and most essential proceedings may, on the whole, designate it in this relation a national government.
1: So previously, you just you stated that there's a different, there's a federal and a national government. So I'm, I'm hearing that there's two distinct governments.
2: It's not two distinct governments. It mm. it is that. It it helps to get into the mindset of the average, for lack of a better term, at this moment, American. So, at the the citizens of the of the colonies at the time, mm-hmm. I, well, they were no longer colonies at this point when this was written. Obviously, this was, by the way, it was published in the Independent Journal. It's uh, the Federalist Number Thirty Nine. It's entitled "Conformity of the Plan to Republican Principles," and it was written by James Madison, and the. The idea, I mean, people were, they just beat the king, right? That, that's still very much in people's memories. This new government, this, uh, this, this young confederation of states, one thing that was pretty universal amongst all the citizenry is they wanted to limit the federal power. They wanted to keep as much power as possible close by, and they guarded that jealously. So they did not want a national government. And now, after rereading this, because I've read the Federalist Number no. 39 before, but it was years ago, and I have such a better perspective now than I do did then. When the citizens said they didn't want a national government, they wanted a Republican government, that meant that the national government, what we think of as the feds or whatever, would only be able to exert its influence on officials of your state government and not be able to do anything directly on you. And what the framers came up with was a system where the gov- the federal government, the national government, can actually legislate directly on somebody and come in and, and arrest you and do things. Try counterfeiting money. That's something that is federal authority and that the feds can certainly come in rightfully so it's it's constitutional but that they would have authority directly on the citizen for that subject matter in in prosecuting that the federal government the the people that are prosecuting you have to follow the bill of rights they have to follow you know all the rules in the constitution so when they when you say the people universally didn't really want a national government, and they guarded it jealousy, that for them meant, no, we'll coin our own money, and if I get caught for counterfeiting, it's going to be from a state official. That was one of the things that was given up in kind of this grand experiment. There hadn't been anything like it before. It's a blend.
1: So when we talk about being a a federal citizen, uh, that's actually a good thing.
2: That is. But yeah. it, it also, on the other side, means that an Article Four citizen is a national citizen. So, But it's understanding which side of the government that's in, mm. right? You are a national citizen in that, prior to the 14th Amendment, you have obligations to a foreign entity— by way of the Constitution, that if you begin to coin money, that you know, gold coins, or you begin to make counterfeit currency, then these people from far away, they have the right to come in and put you in jail and tell you you can't do that. Even though whatever you're printing up technically is may not be against the law in your state, because it doesn't have anything to do with your state, from the perspective of an early American... Right from the perspective of an early American, the states would make their own money. You know, they were the, the they they were jealously guarded their own sovereignty, unlike anybody understands today. I mean, it, it just it was such a different mindset that giving up any of that. In other words, having a a a a, a government that controlled everyone, a central government that could now. Legislate directly on the citizens; they were very, very sensitive to that, and so. Um, well, know, it confuses
1: even further. Back then, I, I believe the term was general government.
2: Exactly. Yeah. The see, it's better to, in, in my opinion, I think I have a much better grasp of the mechanics of this than I do the actual articulate terms to be able to hold a conversation that uses super accurate terms that you would use in a, a, a court filing. Um, I think maybe if I were to simplify it, the federal government, you know, the national government, there's two different sides to it. There's one side that is the several states all joined together, plus the federal authority, plus all of the territories and possessions. That would be the national government. That encompasses everything. But then there's also a federal government, and that federal government has authority to lead to direct states, like control states. It's a, it's articulated in the Constitution that the federal government can regulate exchange between the states, right? The the Commerce Guaranteed Clause.
1: Guarantees a republican form of government in the states as it, well.
2: It guarantees a republican form of government in the states. The federal government does that. But the federal government in the Constitution did not have citizens of its own. The national government had citizens of its own. Those were the people of the several states. The federal government did not have any citizens of its own. It only had employees. What the 14th Amendment did was now created a place. It was the only place left with any authority at the, you know, at the federal level to be able to address the problem of people who, even though they were free by way of the 13th Amendment, they were stateless, and they were subject to horrible conditions because they were stateless. And so the, the states got together, they amended the Constitution via the 14th Amendment, and now the federal government has citizens of its own. And that's what I refer to as the federal 14th Amendment citizenship, and that federal authority that's so important to understand, it, it flows in every state. It's inseparable from the state. It is right at your door all the time. Because p- whether or not the 14th Amendment had passed, if you're counterfeiting money in your house, it's that authority that's going to come through your front door and arrest you. They don't have to go to your state first to get permission to come in your front door. If they have a search warrant from a federal judge then they can come right in your front door and arrest you and prosecute you for counterfeiting money. That's what I mean by that federal authority operates in all of the several states, but it didn't have citizens of its own prior to the 14th Amendment. That authority only had employees and government officials. With the passage of the 14th Amendment, now that same authority, it, it it didn't grow. They, they aren't allowed to come in, beat down your door, and force you to be one of their citizens. You can remain a citizen of California, as von Valkenberg uh, v. Brown, which is a case that has never been overturned, it's still good law, uh, pointed out in California that, that you don't need 14th Amendment citizenship. And it was really for a class of people who, because of the fallout in the the civil war and slavery that no matter what everybody did they could not get this this situation to where these people would be protected by having a state and so them having a state and now the federal government has states within it that are named in such a way to absolutely cause confusion it is incredibly difficult to discern the difference unless you look at the nature of it, right? So if I try and describe to you a, you know, the most awesome Porsche, your favorite convertible bright red Porsche, and tell you what it is, and then have a old Ford Pinto, but then I'm limited to say that it's got wheels, an internal combustion engine, and uh, it's got a steering wheel. You, you can't tell the difference if you're just looking at the description of those two. You have to actually know what the difference is and, and, and see. And Texas v. White really gives an indication of that, that as they boil down that there are many different kinds of states, but there's only one state that is guaranteed a Republican form of government pursuant to Article 4 of the Constitution. And one of the qualities of those states is that it, is, it, it, it has become part of a perpetual union by act of congress so there's there's some very important things to look at to help really identify the difference in in the the state that you're you're dealing with whether it derives its authority to exist from the 14th amendment which does not have a, a guarantee to a republican form of government by article 4 because if the people wanted to you could repeal the 14th amendment
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or is it a state that is guaranteed uh, membership in a perpetual union pursuant to Article 4? And it's real simple. To me, it's absolutely clear that the rules for citizenship under a state that is guaranteed a Republican form of government pursuant to Article 4 the rules for that citizen in dealing with the government are way better than the rules that have developed under citizenship in the federal government, which the framers said, look, there shouldn't be any people that are citizens here. This this very dangerous animal, this federal authority that has incredible amounts of power, should not have its own citizens to be able to feed on. That's how the framers designed it. And that, 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 that taxing authority would really may remain on the national side as far as direct taxation on the citizens, and that if the federal government, if it ever got to the point where the federal government had to tax people directly, there was a provision for it in the Constitution. So... um, Well,
1: we we are in the era of the experimental jurisprudence uh, that that allows for all of these uh, travesties to happen where there's, you know, roadside searches with no search warrant, cavity searches, uh, no-knock warrants, a, a police state... Uh, Your tax dollars are only serving to uh, grow the welfare and and the corporate and social welfare state, not actually uh, for what it was intended to. The taxes are intended to be used for. Um, You know, that's that's part of what what the averring article for state citizenship is all about. You are listening to Agenda 31. This is your co-host Todd McGreevy and Corey Ibe. This is episode number one thirty four. It's November eleventh, two thousand seventeen. We've been uh, taking a hiatus for about almost over five months, and we're back on the podcasting trail. At least to give everybody an update where Corey uh, has been with his uh, Supreme Court case, and uh, we uh, we're trying to you know, get caught up, if you will. And one of the things, Corey, that I, I recently came across that, you know, I was riffing on the whole communism thing because it's the latest in the, in the media, the, the memes and the, the, the propaganda that's being you know, shoved down our throat, how we should be very afraid of some type of collusion with the Russians. Uh, you know, never mind that we have an entire, uh, you know, uh, not I don't even, know, I should call it federal or national national government agency Um uh, about uh impacting uh spreading democracy across the world we we 've been interfering in elections
2: forever yeah forever. and and or, to just exactly. clarify, I think what you 're referring to is a federal agency
1: okay and and I've played the clip before. I wasn't that prepared for it, but there's a clip on NPR where they talk about literally how many. There was a, a, an evaluation of how many elections the U.S. government uh, has impacted and or attempted to impact by influencing the election. It was something like eighty-five or something like that, and the Russians had attempted to impact like twenty or something. And there was a cover of the nineteen eighty-seven Time magazine with. Uh, 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 boris yelston holding a russian flag an american flag in a hannah cartoon and it was a you know 4000 word piece all about how people with close ties to the clinton administration literally moved over to russia and set up an office to help him get elected this all just gets swept under the rug so we should be very afraid of the russians when we're, we're just, it's just all folly so meanwhile i'm just flipping through c-span the other day and up comes this promo for a university, broad, B-R-A-U-D, university, Professor Walter Meade, and what he's gonna talk about. Just listen to this.
0: Foreign Affairs and Humanities Professor Walter Russell Meade discusses nationalism and U.S. foreign policy, focusing on what he calls Jacksonian populist nationalists. He explains how populist presidents Roosevelt, Truman, and Reagan gain their political support. Here's a preview. The Marshall Plan, probably the most brilliant American foreign policy stroke since the Louisiana Purchase, um, comes about not by convincing the American people of the glories of foreign aid, of Hamiltonian and Wilsonian wisdom, but by scaring the hell out of people about the very real threat of a communist takeover. I'm afraid today, by the way, we have a lot of intellectuals and foreign policy activists who would let the Marshall Plan go before they would indulge in in those kinds of scare tactics. But the truth is, if you want to do something big in American politics, in American foreign policy, you cannot do it without Jacksonians. And Jacksonians will only act for Jacksonian reasons. If your idea is, I'll persuade them all not to be Jacksonian anymore, but I'm going to turn them into Wilsonians or turn them into Hamiltonians, by the time, if Truman had tried that, by the time he realized it was never going to work, you know, Stalin would have been in Paris. So if you're serious about American foreign policy, you have to be serious about understanding Jacksonians and working with Jacksonians. And that means working within a framework that they understand, recognize, and can support.
1: I've yet to fully digest what all that means. I I just thought it was, you know, the guy was bringing stuff to a real point there. And scaring the hell out of people about the very real threat of communism is what, you know, carry the day for the Marshall plan. And he's concerned that if somebody wanted to do a big, bold foreign policy now, that they might not raise that fearful flag is what I heard him say.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
1: It's like, really? So, so lead with fear. And that, that's a brilliant stroke, he says. Right. And so it warrants, you know, what, what is, what is threat of communism and, and okay, let's, let's rewind and what's the, what's the uh, definition of communism?
2: Well, the, the, uh, well merriam websters calls it a theory advocating elimination of private property, or B, a system in which goods are owned in common and are available to all as needed. But Dictionary.com has a little bit different uh, uh, definition. It call, both of these are defined as nouns. Uh, a Dictionary.com says a political theory derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Yeah, Marxism.
1: And, oh, geez, you know, so the real threat of communism, he talks about Stalin would have come in, you know, to, to Paris. So that's a physical threat of an actual you know, uh, invading army, invading right. You know, uh, country uh, versus I think what's happened uh, per this uh, former KGB agent speaking to uh, G. Edward Griffin is that we have a uh, uh, they didn't they didn't need an army with physical guns to to implement communism here in America. They just needed to have propaganda. And I'm going to play some of this guy's clip. Let's see. I'm just randomly jumping into this 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 video here that we played back in episode uh, 65. Hold on a second here. Let's see if this.
3: Uh, it's, it's the system, however ridiculous it may sound, the world communist system or the world communist conspiracy, whether I scare some people or not, I don't give a hood. Uh, if if you're not scared by now, nothing can scare you. But you don't have to be paranoid about it. What, what actually happens now, that unlike myself, you have literally... Several years to live on, unless the United States wake up. the The time bomb is ticking. that every second, the disaster is coming closer and closer. Unlike myself, you will have nowhere to defect to, unless you want to live in Antarctica with penguins. This is it. This is the last country of freedom, and and possibility. Okay. So, what do we do? What is your recommendation to the American people? Well, uh, the uh, the uh, the immediate thing that comes to my mind is, of course, there must be a very strong national effort to educate people in in, in the spirit of real patriotism, number one. Number two, to, to explain them the real danger of socialist, communist, whatever, welfare state, big brother government. If people will fail to grasp the impending danger of that development, Nothing ever can help the United States. You may kiss goodbye to your freedom, including freedoms to, to homosexuals, to prison inmates. All this freedom will vanish, evaporate in, in five seconds, including your precious lives. Um, the second thing, I, the moment, at least part of the United States population is convinced that the danger is real, they have to force their government. And I'm not talking about sending letters, signing petitions, and all this beautiful, noble activity, I'm talking about forcing the United States government to stop aiding communism. Because there is no other problem more burning and, and urgent than to stop the Soviet military industrial complex from destroying what is, whatever is left of the free world. And it is very easy to do. No credits. No technology, no money, no political or diplomatic recognition, and, of course, no such idiocy as grain deals to USSR. The Soviet people, 270 millions of of Soviets, will be eternally thankful to you if you stop aiding a bunch of murderers who sit now in Kremlin and whom President Reagan respectfully calls government. They do not govern anything, least of all such complexity as the Soviet economy.
1: So this is from 1986.
2: And and you mentioned a little bit ago about 1027.5 of the California Government Code and a couple of passages from that just to add to what he says is really amazing. He says, The legislature of the state of California finds that there exists a worldwide revolutionary movement to establish a totalitarian dictatorship based upon force and violence rather than upon law. And I'm going to skip down just and go through a couple of the highlights of this. It says... "...that the successful establishment of totalitarian dictatorships has been consistently aided, accompanied, or accomplished by repeated acts of treachery, deceit, teaching of false doctrines, teaching untruth, together with organized confusion, insubordination, and disloyalty, fostered, directed, instigated, or employed by communist organizations and their members in such countries." And it goes on, it says, These communist organizations are characterized by identification of their programs, policies, and objectives with those of the world communism movement. And they regularly and consistently cooperate with and endeavor to carry into execution programs, policies, and objectives substantially identical to programs, policies, and objectives of such world communism movement. And then they end with, There is a clear and present danger, which the legislature of the state of California finds is great and imminent, that in order to advance the program, policies and objectives of the World Communism Movement communist organizations in the state of California and their members will engage in concerted effort to hamper, restrict, interfere with, impede, or nullify the efforts of state and public agencies of the state to comply with and enforce the laws of the state of California, and their members will infiltrate and seek employment by the state and its public agencies. It, if Being here in California, I can tell you that these people in these offices, I've gone to uh, congressman's office. I've dealt with the DMV and so forth. It's like going to the Gestapo. The way they think, they absolutely will say, and th- they they have this air of just such arrogance that they can't be touched. Just so like what put, you would see put, in a communist
1: movie. point on this. Some might think that, that that me playing that was a little hypocritical based on my criticism of Walter Mead saying you know using fear. To, you know this guy you know, in '86, with Gever Griffin, says you should be very afraid of of the military-industrial complex of the Soviet Union. You know, and we should stop them. And uh, you know, if you listen to Lou Rockwell, he'll tell you that the you know the Russian economy is the size of Manhattan's economy, economy and they spend you know we, we outspend them. I can't remember the number. Is it is it you know we're six hundred billion a year?
2: Well, we spend more. Of, the United States by itself spends yeah. more than the rest of the world combined.
1: Yeah. So and... so, that, so I'm not worried about them as a, you know as a as a physical threat. What I'm trying to say is that the 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 very marxist communist ideology and practice of no personal property is right it right at our feet. It's 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 called the license plate on your car.
2: Right. Right. It's there. It's yeah.
1: been here. it's it's already in our house. That's right. where we are. Literally right now we are living within a communist era of America. Because but, of the, the not the, the not ownership of personal property. And your effort at SCOTUS was the most critical piece of personal property, and that is your own consent. If we can't own our own consent, how can we own any other property?
2: Right. You see, this whole communist program is 100% voluntary. There were open communist programs in this country that were found to be absolutely constitutionally um, legally legal to exist but it had to be voluntary. If you wanted to go into one of these compounds, you know, you, you had to voluntarily enter and that you could leave anytime you wanted. They couldn't send their people out and force you in. Well, there were allegations that these people were brainwashing people in some of these utopian societies, and likely they were. But you had your consent, right? You own that consent. The states have adopted that same thing. These, these old, um, you know, just post-Civil War communist utopian societies that kind of popped up all over the country along with all these secret societies, they, they, uh, they failed because it didn't take very long for people to realize that it was a scam that was going on. And the guy that started the society ended up being in total control. He, he ended up controlling who people slept with, you know I mean some of these stories are pretty amazing, and they were they were horrible places that just collapsed within a generation or two but the, Stop this! Show me a hobbit! <laughs> that's right, but the government, with its ability to just fool people into thinking that statutes are laws, and you know I won't go into that a whole lot, but fooling people into think that rules that apply to them also apply to the people, but not really the government is just an extension of what these little communist utopian societies were. But the question is, like you said, do you own your consent? Are you allowed to say, look, I don't consent to this communist system of government that's a federal type of citizenship. I want state citizenship, which is part of the nation. It, it, it's, it, it's as if, if you could change this ideological argument that we have versus state citizenship versus federal 14th Amendment citizenship, and And kind of draw a line to to make a parable or or a comparison as if it were a geographical type of citizenship. Imagine if there were a time in this country where everybody moved out of Utah. Did just nobody live there for no reason? They just moved out of Utah because they thought everything's better. But then you come back and the government says, "Oh no, you're not allowed back here anymore. We just took over this whole thing, and it's our playground now. We'll put a big fence around it, and we do whatever we want. That's our property." That, that wouldn't be right they, they would lose, right because the the state the, the land you're guaranteed to be able to go to Utah. If you were born in Utah, you don't give up your citizenship because you move somewhere else Well, well,
1: just a current example of you know the the, the, the communist you know totalitarian you know, era that Yuri was referring to. Uh, did you hear about the Treasury department wing La- the Treasury department is the latest wing of the government that is accused of domestic spying. Have you heard about this?
2: I have not, but that does not surprise me at all. The Treasury Department is incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, the short version is uh just keeping track of uh, all of uh, all of our bank records. Just you know, total yeah. access to bank records and just, you know, not investigating wrongdoing but just more just data grabs so they can just have more metadata and more analysis available to them and so um you know, it's just it just goes on and on and until uh, we Assert here on agenda 31 until Article 4 state citizens stand up in the several states. They're they're the only ones that actually have any rights that are protected. Everybody else has consented their their waived their rights away to have that exact thing happen to your bank account. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's you know part of what we're doing. Why we're doing what we're doing, Corey. Uh, I don't mean to cut you short here. I think we should uh, uh, thank our our supporters and. and, and... <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Yes, we want to thank our supporters. And that reminds me, I should probably play our, uh, our um, don't I have a, uh, I thought I had some article for karma that I would play for people. But it's been a while since I've been in my. You blew it! <laughs> uh...
2: <laughs> or... Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice
0: I am willing to make.
1: The support continues, and uh, we have to give a big shout-out to uh, our – we have a level called iPad a year, an annual donation per year, the the, the cost of an iPad, if you will, which came in early a.m. today from John Mayer for $310. John, thank you very much for your support of Agenda 31 and Corey's efforts to – Prove, do we own our own consent or not? It's a, a laudable cause and I, we appreciate you uh, stepping up like that. We have Mitch Lamore and Lauren Alberts and Adrian Simmit and Bob Reeder and John Roberts all at the $31 a month Compass Club level. Uh, we also have uh, Life of the World, William Hengler, uh, Dean Brown and Shay O'Brien uh, contributing uh, smaller monthly uh, uh, donations each month as well. Uh, we greatly appreciate that, especially since we've been off the air for over five months. Uh, every little bit goes a long way. As you can see, what you know, Corey was able to accomplish. Uh, well, you know, during our hiatus, uh, I think it was huge. And we will get the rid of mandamus that Corey is uh, that Corey filed posted um, uh, next show. We're going to go over that. I think in a little more detail because you're trying to get certified copies of that. I think that's right. That-
2: yeah, I've got on order a certified copy of the petition. So. Uh, It's exactly what went to the court. It'll come from the court. We'll post that. And, you know, the idea is post it. It didn't work, so don't copy it, right? Pick it apart and improve it. Right, exactly. And,
1: um, uh, you know, next episode, we'll go over a comment uh, made at the website. It was back in April that I finally just looked at uh, that I've made live. It's at episode 129, Taking to Task, the... uh, uh, episode with JP and Corey going over the Bruce Shaber case and and uh, the, the whole IRS and, and tax filing uh, circumstances and we've got it actually if you want to visit episode number one twenty nine you can see the reply from JP in writing so we'll uh, we'll take that up on on the next episode as well um, and. You know, this is uh, you've been listening to uh, Agenda 31. We really appreciate your,
2: your financial support. Thank you, you very much, everybody. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's, it's huge. And uh, a little bit goes a very, very long way. We encourage you to go to Agenda31.org and uh, support, support what you hear on this, on this podcast and, and share this with your social networks. Please get the word out. Um, you've been listening to episode 134 of Agenda 31. This has been Todd McGreevy and Corey Ide. Ask And be sure to ask yourself, what is your strategy to make a difference?
0: government has figured out how it all transpired. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control again.
3: Anti-authoritarian anti-establishment you politics is indefinite.
0: People. We don't want them running our lives. We don't want them starting wars. We don't want them being able to assassinate people. This should just add to our uh, impetus to try to do what we can to expose these people and to uh, uh, take power away from them uh, so, that not, so that they're not able to uh, perform the evils that they have performed
2: uh, for so very long. well, yeah,
0: we're not really a free country. I mean, come on.